Morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. Um, this morning, I'm going to talk about, and we're going to look at what the Word has to say about our finances and our attitude and how we handle our money. Um, my sermon today is on money. Most likely, recently, you have noticed that gas prices have gone up. It looks like it's about $3.09, I think I've seen around here. So if you were thinking about replacing your gas-guzzling car with a horse, you'd better think twice about that because you may still need to go to the gas pumps. I have a picture that illustrates this. <laughs> I, just, I just saw this Tuesday night at uh, Sheets and Marietta, and I just thought it was kind of cute. I don't know what they were doing there, uh, but uh, apparently they were going inside maybe getting some uh, food, but anyhow. Just thought that I've lived in Lancaster County a long time. I've never seen that before. All right, uh, let's let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, just thank you for your uh, your perfect word. Thank you that it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And uh, just thank you that your word contains everything we need for life and godliness. Thank you for your instructions and teachings on how to handle our money and what our attitude would should be towards, towards money, and we just uh, pray that, uh, that we may have uh, open ears and hearts today to hear what you have to say to us from your word. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen. Do you and your spouse ever argue about money? If you don't, you're probably not normal, maybe. <laughs> Anyhow, <laughs> there are many decisions that need to be made about money. Who is going to be the main breadwinner? How much are you going to allow for giving and saving? And how much can we spend on eating out and vacation? How much should we spend for a car and our cell phone plan and for the internet and a host of other decisions? 73% of couples say they have money management styles that are different from their spouse. Dave Ramsey, uh, says that oftentimes when a couple, one will be the nerd and the other is the free spirit. And it could be either the man or the woman. Well, in our household, uh, my wife, I'm the nerd. The nerd is the guy that looks to see how much money's coming in, maybe puts a budget together and de decides uh, you know, how much we should spend here and, and there and keeps track of the outgo. Well, um, my wife is more the free spirit time free spirit type. Um, if I sit down, I've sat down with her already with, with a budget and a bunch of numbers and stuff, and pretty soon she starts yawning and glazing over. And so, you know, for the most part, we're compatible that way, and uh, it's not near the problem it was at one time. But uh, real problems arise sometimes when there are two nerds you know, the couple is made up of two nerds or two free spirits, and they don't balance each other out. That can be a problem. Financial differences and problems are reported to be the leading cause of divorce. So how do we passionately pursue Christ with our finances? Well, I would like to look at three biblical principles for handling our finances and then give you some practical first steps. First of all, it is impossible to passionately pursue Christ and passionately pursue money. Let's look at Matthew 6, 19 to 24. And uh, I'm, I'm going through a lot of scripture here, and I have all the scripture on the screen there. If you want to look them up, you can. But uh, anyhow, uh, starting with verse 19 of Matthew chapter 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and rust destroy. I, I see here on the overhead is the, is the word vermin. And uh, anyhow, this, the Greek word here, here in, uh, it's normally, it's the only place that Greek word is translated rust. And I tried to understand, uh, tried to get some background on that. And um, so anyhow, uh, back in Luke, there was a, a rich farmer or whatever, and he was rich and he had lots of grain. And that was kind of a status symbol there of being rich. And anyhow, apparently the vermin here could mean to, you know, for mice and rats to eat, eat that grain. Uh, 
it actually, the root word, the root word, meaning of the word actually means to, to eat. And I'm thinking, how, does, how do you translate that into rust? But then I, my wife came up with this. She said, well, you know, rust does eat away at your car. So uh, I thought that was, so anyhow, but um, just a little explanation there why uh, most translations uh, do uh, translate it as rush, rust. And where thieves break in and steal, verse 20, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. While not condemning wealth per se, Christ denounced both the love of money and the devotion to money. Literal translation might be, do not treasure up treasures for yourselves, is the idea of stockpiling or hoarding, and pictures wealth that is not being used, but only stockpiling. I have a personal theorem of my own that the more storage air you have, the more you will stockpile. So if you've got a basement or an attic or a shed or something, our tendency all, always is to fill them up. <clears throat> so the bigger your basement or attic or garage or shed, the more you keep and stockpile. The problem is not in having wealth, but what priority it has in your life and heart. Are the many possessions we all have just for our own consumption, or are they for the furtherance of God's kingdom? The contrast here in Matthew 6 is between earthly treasures and heavenly treasures. Earthly treasures here on earth are our home, our cars, our money, and all the other stuff we have. The more stuff we have, the more time it takes to maintain, fix, and repair, and preserve because all our stuff is continuing to break down and rust like our cars do here in Pennsylvania. We also need to protect them from thieves. Jim Elliott, who is no, said this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So the idea is that we, what we do for Christ uh, counts for God's kingdom and uh, our treasures in heaven and where moth and rust cannot corrupt them. And so it, we can't take any of our things with us either. So let me repeat that. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. When John D. Rockefeller passed away in 1937, he was the richest man in America. The question was asked, how much did he leave behind? The answer will be the same for all of us. He left it all. You've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer. Everything, we came here without anything and we're gonna leave here without anything. So how do we lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven? For that, we need to look at 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Command those who are rich in this present world, and I think we could say that applies to all of us, because even those who are poor in this country have significantly more than poor people in other countries. Not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good and be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. Just like to summarize uh, these verses, if you are rich in this present world, do not be arrogant or conceited or find your hope and security in your wealth because your wealth can suddenly disappear. Uh, I don't... If in uh, 2000, 
eight, uh, there was a big stock uh, stock market crash, and uh, if you had a lot of money in stocks, millions and millions of people at that time lost millions and millions of dollars. So you can't you can't trust uh, you know in, in in your money. Only put your hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. The rich are to do good, they are to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and be willing to share. And this is the way to lay up treasures in heaven. My wife and I lived in a mobile home in uh, Indiana uh, for five years in a, in a mobile home park. And one day the mobile home park alongside of us um, started on fire and it seemed like in two or three minutes that mobile home was completely gutted. Uh, I mean consumed with fire, and uh, I just, we, we knew the people lived there, but I just thought to myself, wow, there's everything you work for, just whew, gone, just like that. All we own can be consumed by fire in a few minutes. Now back to Matthew 6:24. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So you, you and I each need to ask ourselves if we are pursuing Christ or, or money. We cannot do both. Even a poor person can be obsessed with money, like those who buy lottery tickets or bet money that they should be saving. You cannot leave this chapter without looking at Matthew uh, 6.33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as, as well. If we seek his kingdom and his will and his righteousness, he will provide for all our basic needs of food and water and clothes to wear. The verses uh, prior to this talk about not to worry because God takes care of the birds of the air. He feeds them, and he also adorns the lily even greater than Solomon's temple. So God will, if, you, if, we, seek, if we seek God's uh, kingdom first, he will provide all our needs, all our basic needs. Additional verses that I wanted to put in this past message are 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 10. These verses are a warning to the dangers of pursuing wealth in place of pursuing Christ. These are sobering verses. The first part of the verse is not, though. Verse 6 says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. And again, that's what was promised in Matthew 6, 33, the food and clothing. Those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Okay, the next uh, principle I want to look at is if God owns it all, and then I am his money manager. And we'll look at 1 Chronicles 29, 11 to 13, and some other verses here. Yours, Lord, is the greatest and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Your Lord is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. Psalms 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Haggai 8, 2.8 8 says, The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. Deuteronomy 8.18, But remember the Lord your God, for it is he. He gives you the ability to produce wealth, so we even get our ability to produce wealth uh, from God, and he owns it all, and so confirms his covenant, which we swore to your ancestors as it is today. And then Psalms 50, 10 to 12, 
For every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains, and the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. If God owns it all, then you and I are no longer owners, but only managers <clears throat> or the steward of what is his. It is easy for us to think that when we get our paycheck that it belongs to us, we, we earned it, and we can do whatever we want with it. But it, it is not ours. It belongs to God, and we are only the managers. God's money is not given to us, but is entrusted to us. And there's a difference there. As the manager, it is my job to find out what the owner wants done with his assets and then carry out his will. Dave Ramsey gives an illustration where suppose that uh, you saved up a couple thousand dollars or whatever and you took it to the bank and uh, asked them to put it in a savings account to uh, earn, earn some interest and say whatever, a couple years later, whatever, you come back and there's something you need, you need to buy and you go to the bank and let's say you put in like uh, $4,000 or something and you want to withdraw the whole $4,000. And the guy at the bank says, well, you know, I was looking for, I, I needed some things myself, so I just went ahead, went ahead and helped myself. So I don't know whether God thinks about us sometimes that way that we're not really honoring him with, uh, with our money. The parable of the talents in Matthew 25, 14 to 23 also demonstrate this principle. This is kind of a long passage, but uh, I'll read it here again. It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted, again, the word entrusted, not given wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Most of your Bibles, instead of say bags of gold, might say talents, but... Uh, it's the same thing, um, it's the amount of money. Then he went on his journey. The, master who, the man who had received five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more talents. So also the one who had two bags of gold gained two more bags of gold. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things that will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. So both, uh, both of these uh, servants doubled what uh, the master had entrusted to them. When the man who had received one bag of gold came, Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered. This third servant is accusing his master of being a hard man and being unmerciful, which was not true. The master here rep represents Christ. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew, and it's not that Christ was this way, it's just that if the servant thought Christ was this way, then why would he do what he did? So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. The third servant was also identified as belonging to the master, which is, which is Christ. But his relationship with Christ did not involve genuine faith and regeneration. He produced nothing with the single talent he was given and did not even attempt to use it for his master's benefit or profit. 
He just dug a hole and put it in the ground. In verse 30, this wicked, lazy servant was thrown into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This servant totally disregarded the stewardship he had been given. Matthew 24 and 25 are considered to be about the, the end times. And this third servant would be representative of those professing to belong to Christ before the second coming and was banished to hell because he was not a, a true believer. The servants with five bags and two bags doubled what they had been entrusted with, and the master commended them, saying, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. I think that's what uh, all of us would like to, uh, to hear when we get before Christ at the second coming or the rapture. Uh, well done, thou good and faithful servant. The master called them good and faithful. These two good servants could be totally trusted to act and be faithful to the master for all the resources entrusted to them. The two good servants acted only for the benefit of their master. They were rewarded by their master when he put them in charge of even more things. Kingdom rewards are given in proportion to our faithfulness on, here on earth. The two good servants were also rewarded by sharing in the divine joy of their master. And the uh, third principle I want to look at here, I didn't know exactly what to call this, but we're calling it giving. Giving is an essential spiritual discipline. There are so many verses on money and giving in Scripture, it was really hard to decide what to cover. I was going to focus on 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, but decided that was too much to cover. So some of the following comes from Compass 1, which is... Uh, teaches uh, biblical principles of handing money. And uh, today in the Word by Bible, Moody Bible Institute and John MacArthur's commentary on 2 Corinthians. So number one, giving should be periodic. In 1 Corinthians 6, 2, it reads, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will ha have to be made. The Lord understands that we need to give frequently and habitually. I would say at least as often as you get paid, however often that might be for you. One of the first things we should do when we get paid is determine what percentage or amount we want to give to our local church and for the furtherance of God's work and set that aside so we don't spend it on ourselves. Giving should be personal. Back in First uh, Corinthians 16, 2, it says, On the first day, of it, each one of you should set aside. And then here in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Let each one of you give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Giving should be premeditated. And we're to give there in, uh, as he has purposed as he has purposed in his heart, however, what you've decided in your heart. Our giving should be done prayerfully, exercising care in selecting where we are going to give the money that God has entrusted to us. Giving should be a priority. Proverbs 3, 9, and 10 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. As soon as we receive any income, we should set aside the amount we are going to give. The habit, this habit helps us to remember to put Christ first in all we do and defeats the temptation to spend on ourselves the portion we have set aside to give. Giving to others happens when we first give ourselves to the Lord. In 2 Corinthians uh, 8, 5, uh, you know, God, want, God wants our life. And they exceeded... He's talking about the, uh, the, the churches in Macedonia. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. But they gave themselves. And part of giving ourselves to the Lord is to uh, also, uh, you know, use uh, what he's entrusted to us for his honor and glory. John MacArthur sums up 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 8 this way. This passage reveals that giving is motivated by God's grace. 
transcends difficult situations, circumstances. You know, these churches gave, even though they were going through a difficult time themselves, it is with joy, not hindered by poverty, generous, proportionate, sacrificial, voluntary, should be considered a privilege. It's an act of worship. It's in concert with other Christian virtues, and it's an evidence of our love for him. Are we enjoying the privilege of being able to give generously and cheerfully? If not, we may want to ask why not. Take a look at 2 Corinthians 9.5. So I thought it necessary <clears throat> to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. The last part of this verse where it says not as one grudgingly given could also be translated as not affected by covetousness or greed. And our sinful nature, uh, you know, tends to want us to, want us to hold things back for ourselves. Covetousness and greed is the sin that is the greatest hindrance to giving. Covetousness and greed is this, oh, right, right, <laughs> giving into our sinful nature and the desire to have the latest, newest, and best of whatever will hinder our ability to give joyfully and generously. By giving ourselves wholeheartedly to follow and pursue Christ and following God's methods of handling his money his way, we can also experience the joy and privilege of giving generously. Um, I don't have this in my notes, but um, then a few years ago that uh, my wife and I were able to become debt-free, debt and uh, that's one of the greatest blessings uh, I, I can say, and it really, and it's not wrong for uh, people to, to get a 30-year mortgage on their house and stuff, but that ends up being our largest expense, and uh, it's just uh, it's just a blessing to be able to to, to get get out of debt, and uh, it frees up so much more money, uh, especially when you can uh, pay off your mortgage. <clears throat> if you are living paycheck to paycheck, possibly have credit card uh, debt that keeps getting larger and can't seem to find any money to give or to save, we you may be in financial bondage, but there is hope for all of us. We can come out of this bondage and come to the place where we can joyously and generously give to the work of God. God's principles of handling his money works every time because they are perfect, because he is perfect and totally faithful. There's uh, three organizations uh, today that uh, you know, are dedicated to teaching God's principles of uh, finance. And one of those is Crown at crown.org, Compass One at compass1.org, and the Dave Ramsey organization. Resources for Compass One can be found at moneywise.org, uh, WDAC, uh, every weekday at uh, 3.30. There's, uh, they give financial advice, but people can call in and say, you know, I just got this inheritance. Should I pay off this debt or pay off that debt or whatever? So it, it's quite interesting. Uh, if you are interested in studying what the Bible says about our finances, let me or one of the elders know, and we can consider offering one of these classes in the fall. We also have a few. I bought some, brought some crown money maps, which is where you get started uh, for financial freedom. And I put some of those available uh, at the uh, Welcome Center out here for you to take. There's only maybe five or six. If you're interested, know uh, how to get started toward financial freedom. And I also put a sign-up sheet there, just handwritten on, uh, if you would be interested in doing, doing a study on uh, what the Bible teaches about how to handle uh, uh, his money. Thank you. So I have, to, I have to say that I was not excited about talking about hobbies on the day they were talking about finances, to have to admit uh, the fact that how much money I've spent on my hobby uh, or uh, how I struggle with wanting the new and best uh, thing. So, so I didn't want to have to tell you how big of a problem I have. 
<laughs> um, so most of you know that Morgan and I play board games, right? But uh, we play a lot of board games, and you probably don't really have a concept, okay? I, I just, that, that, that's my thing this morning, is I have to be honest, and I have to be open. Uh, many years ago, we moved away from watching TV at night after the kids went to bed, and we, uh, we needed to spend time together. We didn't talk, right? We would just fall asleep on the couch, and, and that created other relationship stuff that, that we had to deal with. And so we, we started playing board games to spend time together. Uh, and, and if you're friends on Facebook, you've seen us post pictures of games that uh, you've probably never heard of. Uh, but, but so here's a picture of part of our board game collection. Um, Dan, I, where's Dan? You know, there you are. So Dan, there's, there's like six, six to 800 board games that come out every year. Right, and so the struggle from a financial standpoint is is like, oh, okay, which you know, I want that. That's new. That's different, right? So, uh, so this is just part of the collection. Um, all told, we have 306 board games and card games. Um, I don't count Monopoly. Monopoly's not in there. Risk is not in there. Um, you know, the, those classic games that most of you know, I don't count because I don't play them. Uh, so. We, there's a website, so this is the hobby, right? This is the, the geeky side. Uh, there's a website called boardgamegeek.com, and I, that's how I know I have 306 board games because I track them and we track the plays that we have. We have an app that says um, when we last played a game and who won and what was the score and, oh, Morgan wins at this game 30% of the time and I win. You know, I mean, this is, this is the hobby, right? And you guys just don't, I, I, I see disbelief today. You guys, Denny's got his, he's like, what in the world? This is, I don't understand this. All right, so let me flip the table, right? Um, I don't know if Tim, Tim and Carrie's here. Tim, there you are. I sent you a message. I was going to warn you yesterday, but you didn't respond. So this is on you, Tim, all right? So Tim, Tim runs, okay? And so back in February, uh, Tim posted that he had run one mile every single day outside, regardless of the weather, for 365 days. He had a streak going, and he kept the streak going. I don't know. Is the streak over? Uh, is it? See, you guys appreciate that hobby more than my hobby. That's a hobby, but that's insane. I can't even understand. Tim, how many? 466 days. Is it still going? 466. Running is free. Yes. Yes. Okay. Fair enough. Wait, I don't know how many you run through shoes, right? You got to, but you get, it's not quite free, but yes, I running is free. So, but I don't understand that hobby. Okay. Every day, 466 days, snow, rain. Um, I, I don't know. So, so that's a hobby. I don't understand. Some of you guys like camping. I don't understand you either. It's hot. Right? It's hot. It's humid. You go outside and you want to spend all weekend. And I'm like, I don't get that. Give me an air conditioning and a comfortable bed. I'm good. Right? I mean, I, so I, some of you guys are hunters, right? Do we have some hunters in the room? You guys get up at ungodly hours on Saturday mornings, the day to sleep in, to go out and sit and do nothing. <laughs> right? I mean, that's what hunters do, right? So we have, we, so you guys don't understand my hobby. I, and I, I say I don't understand all your hobbies. Um, some of you would say that uh, you don't have hobbies, right? Some of you would say, I don't really have a hobby. You probably do. Um, maybe you don't have a hobby because you work a lot, and we're going to talk about that in a second. Uh, maybe your, your hobby is your kids. Maybe it's uh, sports, right? How many times a day do you go to ESPN and you check out the sports scores, or do you, you have stats memorized, right? Hey, I found something today. I think I knew about it. If you have an iPhone, I don't know if Android's this way, but I can check this battery usage. I can check how long I've spent in certain apps or doing certain things. So your hobby may be Facebook. And if you went and you might say, hey, I spent three hours yesterday on Facebook, or I spent 10 hours last week on Facebook, right? So you have a hobby. Um, it may be reading or gardening or television. It may not fit into the extreme that, uh, that my board game hobby has. Can we change the picture? What's next? Do they okay. All right. Um, but it's something that you do uh, for pleasure. And so I want to look at three things today. Uh, the first thing is, is it okay to have a hobby? 
All right. Uh, is it okay? So I'm going to sit here and justify my hobby to you. Um, is it okay to have a hobby? Uh, the second, so we'll get to these. These won't be on the screen right now. But second thing was, when can a hobby be a bad thing? And how can we honor God with our hobby? So that's not a lot of ground to cover, right? What time is it? We're good? Oh, okay. We're going to go fast. All right. Is it okay to have a hobby? Yes. All right. I'm here to definitively say, yes, it is okay to have a hobby. It is a gift of God to enjoy life. It is a gift of God to find enjoyment in life. Uh, I'm going to look, I'm going to jump around a little bit. The scriptures will be on the screen, uh, but I'm going to start in Ecclesiastes chapter two, verses 24 through 26. It says, there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is, uh, for, for to a person who, oh, sorry, that was, yeah. For to a person who is good in his sight, uh, he is given wisdom and knowledge and joy. So Ecclesiastes is written by King Solomon, whom the Bible says was one of the wisest men to ever live. Uh, Solomon honored God early in his life after his father David had died. He, he built the temple. He, he followed after the Lord. He, he, he gave and sacrificed a lot. And God, God gave him everything. He gave him everything, more than he could ever really want. But it wasn't enough for Solomon. Solomon wanted more. And through most of his life, he kept chasing after the more. He wanted more, and he chased after it. He pursued it. And Ecclesiastes is a book that he writes uh, likely near the end of his life as he looks back, right? As he looks back and, and, and he says, he evaluates his life. And, and one of the major themes that runs through Ecclesiastes is the meaningless of everything. He looks back at his life and said, I wasted so much. There was nothing that found, brought me satisfaction. The chapter 2, if we were to uh, study chapter 2 today, um, the first part of chapter 2, he, uh, Solomon pursues pleasure, and that didn't satisfy him. Second, then he moves in, he pursued possessions, and that didn't satisfy. Then he pursued achievement, and that didn't satisfy. Look at with me at verse 11, it'll be on the screen. Um, he says, Thus I considered all my activities that my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity, and striving after the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. And verse 17, it says, So I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after the wind. It's kind of depressing. But you get down to verse 24 and verse 25, and Solomon is saying that it is a gift of God to be able to enjoy life. Right? He says in verse 24, this is also, I have seen that it is from the hand of God. And verse 25, who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? You know, he, he starts out verse 24, he says, it's not anything better than to eat and drink right? This is not the fatalistic perspective of, hey, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die, right? It, it, because this is not the eat and drink and, and there's just nothing else worth it in life. This is saying God has given you life and in him you can find enjoyment. In him you can have joy. It, it's, it, he, he's not looking at this fatalistically as he looks back. He says all of these other things, the pleasure and possessions and, 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 and achievement, those are all meaningless and futile. And I can waste my life, and I did waste my life doing all those things, but there's nothing better than be able to enjoy life as a gift from God. We find freedom to enjoy life in Christ. You know... When I first became a Christian, I had this picture of God being, uh, I, I probably would never have said this, right? But this is the picture in my head that God's, God is this old cosmic killjoy, right? He's sitting on his throne and he's waiting until you get to the point you're having too much fun and he's going to throw lightning bolts at you and he's going to say, stop, that's not, you're not allowed to have fun, right? It, it's like, it, it's all work, right? We just, we, we keep chasing after. And so in our radical commitment to Christ, as we passionately pursue Christ, sometimes we have to remember the, the ability to enjoy life as a gift from God. You know, the, think about this. God created beaches. Some of your hobbies are going to the beach, right? And some of you know exactly how to pack the car. You can go for a day and get back in a day, right? I mean, some of you, that's your hobby. But God created beaches for us to enjoy. I mean, they're really not useful for much else. 
I mean, it, you, you go and see the mag, magnificence and uh, the wonder of, of God's creation, but, but be, you, can't really, you can't build on beaches, right? They're, they're land that other than just being uh, there for our enjoyment, there's not a lot of uh, additional purpose. And so God is not a cosmic killjoy. He's not sitting waiting to, uh, to try to get us back in line when we enjoy, too, when we have too much fun. He's given us freedom to be fully satisfied in him. See, that's the difference, right? He's given us freedom to be fully satisfied in him because in him we can find satisfaction. And then we can see that he has given us the gift to enjoy life. If we don't have him, then we can chase after pleasure. We can chase after hobbies, and it won't satisfy Right, it's that newest and best, right? It's that temptation, and I got to fight against to say, okay, hey, I don't have that board game. I need to buy that board game. In Him, I can be satisfied, and in Him, I can. He gives me a gift to be able to enjoy life. First Timothy six seventeen. Um, uh, Dan read this uh, uh, when he was talking about finances. It says, "Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches." but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. That's a powerful, I don't think, this is just such a, it's such an odd concept, I just don't think about it. All right, so is it okay to have a hobby? Yes, that's my statement. Um, Please come argue with me if you disagree. Um, (laughs) Or if you think I'm insane, I'm okay with that. Uh, it's a gift of God to find enjoyment in life. Second thing, but when can, it, when can a hobby be a bad thing? And so here's the biblical truth, right? Christ should be our greatest passion in life. I, Morgan, was, we, 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 uh, we were going to dinner with some friends last night, and um, I realized that I was speaking on, I was going to talk about board games. This was a Sunday. If I had a board game t-shirt, I could get away with, get away with preaching in a t-shirt. Uh, and um, there was a T-shirt she found that said, "Hey, just warning, I may randomly start talking about board games," and um, and I I do right I, I I do, but but Christ has to be my passion. He has to be my greatest passion in life, greater than my hobby. So we're going to look at Luke chapter nine, verses fifty-seven through sixty quickly. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, "I will follow you wherever you go." And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Hobbies take time, money, energy. We invest ourselves in our hobbies. They're important to us. They're a reflection of how God has made us. Right? They really, truly are a reflection of, of who God has made us, and we enjoy them, and they're a gift of God. But they sh- we should never be more passionate about something in our lives than we are about Christ. We should never be more passionate about something in our lives than we are about Christ. And it's easy to get off track. It's, a, it's easy to be walking the fine line between being thankful for the gift of God and, and making it an idol in our lives, of saying this is more important. Right, of saying, of looking for that, for my hobby to be my escape or my, my peace or of my comfort and my security, and then Christ. So I have a confession. So back in March, uh, and I love, I love how God works these things out, right? Um, back in March, uh, a group of guys that I've gotten to know through playing board games, uh, we try to get away once a year and we go and play board games for a weekend. And so we, we go down on a Thursday and we, we come home on a Sunday. And um, we play board games for like 16 to 20 hours. I mean, we, it, it's just it, it, one weekend a year. And I know it sounds crazy. Um, and I look forward to this. And I love playing the games, but, but I love getting to know these guys and being a part of their lives. And so back in March, um, something was happening here at the church. We were bringing candidates uh, to campus. And staff was asked to have breakfast with the candidates. And so I missed the weekend. And I was really kind of frustrated. You can ask PJ. I was really I was like, why? And so, um, but my friend, so there was that Saturday happened to be the Saturday that Matt Watson and Ashley, uh, came to visit, uh, uh, on campus. And my friend, Eric, who doesn't go to church, we, we, we had them over to their house, uh, the week before the Friday before. And he said, well, Ray, your church is more important. 
He knew that about me, but I'd forgotten that my greatest passion in life had to be Christ. So when can a hobby be a bad thing? When it takes the place of Christ in priority in our lives. When we set aside time to watch every baseball game and remember stats, but can't find the five or 10 or 15 minutes to read God's word. When we, can't, when we don't think twice about sacrificing worship for our hobby. You know, I struggle. I just told you that I would have been gone on a Sunday. So three years ago was the first time I got to go um, or I was invited to go to this weekend. And I really struggled with this whole idea of, can I, it, I'm going to miss church. If I go, I'm going to miss church. Uh, and it was, it was like five hours away. So it, it wasn't, um, it, it wasn't, it wasn't close. And I was like, I, I don't come to church out of legalism, right? I don't come out. Of, I don't come to church because, um, if I don't come to church, God won't love me. God won't bless me. You know, I don't come seeking God's favor. I, I come to church because I need it, right? It, it's important. I, I need it. I, I, I need to worship. I, do, I don't come out of obligation or responsibility, when we go on vacation, we go to church uh, because we need it. It's something that, that I can tell a difference when I don't go, when I'm not in worship, when, I, when that's not something in my life. And so for me, I, I, I struggle when, when I, I, I don't want to get to the point where I too easily give up or sacrifice worship for my hobby. And for me, that's my struggle of when can it be a bad thing. I don't want to live in legalism, but I want... Christ to be my primary passion, my greatest passion in life. So when can a hobby be a bad thing when it replaces our passion for Christ? How can the third thing, and then we'll, be, we'll wrap up very quickly, how can we honor God with our hobby? And we honor God when our hobby brings us to worship and to love. Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 39, it's the greatest commandment and the second greatest Somebody approaches Jesus and says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We are to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind. In Mark chapter 12, verse 30, adds strength. We're to love God with all that we are. And so... God has made us in a certain way. Tim, he's made you that you love to run. So when you run, you worship, right? When, 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 you, uh, when you look at how many miles that you've run, do you, does your heart cry out in gratitude for that? When, when, when you're at the beach, is your heart drawn to worship and the magnificent power and creativity of God and thankfulness that God's given you the opportunity to rest? When you go hunting, do you consider in amazement how, how God has given mankind stewardship of all creation, if your hobby is about escape, then it falls short of what God can make it in your life. Because it's supposed to draw us to worship. Our, we honor God when our hobby brings us to worship, but we also honor God when our hobby brings us to love. So three years ago, um, we were in our summer series here at Mount Calvary. I, some of you will remember that. Uh, but it was when the preaching team took a break and, and they had uh, some other men preach uh, for the summer. And BJ gave a talk on hobbies. Uh, it was our first summer here, and uh, I wasn't on staff. And BJ, in talking about his hobbies, he challenged me to say, hey, the only relationships I really have are here at church. I work from home, right? So my, my day job, I work from home. So I have relationships with people 600 miles away or across the country, but I don't have relationships outside of this building for the most part, my neighbors on the street. And so BJ challenged, God used BJ to challenge me and say, hey, you need to go and meet people. If you're going to love your neighbor as yourself, you have to have people to love. If you're going to love people as yourself and you're going to love them the way that I've loved you, Ray, and, and share with them the greatest love and the greatest gift that you've ever given, then you have to meet them and you have to know them. And so how can we use God, our hobby, uh, how can we honor God with our hobby? I think is whether it brings us to worship or whether it brings us to love because one of the greatest things, I mean, it's just, it's been a crazy experience to, uh, to go and, and play board games with people that are from all walks of life that look very different from me uh, and everybody else. And I'm exposed to things and people that I would never meet and would never come in these doors. But I praise God for that. So I started going and attending, and, and it's given me the opportunity to show love um, to others. 
And so we honor God when our hobby brings us to worship and to love. So going back to Ecclesiastes, and then, and then I'm done. Um, I don't have a verse, but uh, Solomon found that everything in life was meaningless. It was all futile. He chased after satisfaction, right? When we chase after more and more, we want, we want to find satisfaction, so we chase after in our job, we work hard, and maybe that promotion or maybe that, that salary increase, maybe that's going to get it. Right? We chase after an education, and maybe that doctorate, right? maybe that master's degree, whatever it is. If we just get our degree, then maybe that will bring the satisfaction in life. We chase after it, uh, we, we chase after it in, in our possessions. We're like, okay, I got the right size house now. And, and as Dan said, you grow to your house, right? You fill it in, so now you need a bigger house. And so you, you're like, oh, if I just have this, and if I just have this, then I'll be satisfied. Satisfaction can only truly be found in Jesus Christ. It can only be found in knowing that, that we are undeserving of his love and his grace, and we're undeserving of the fact that Jesus came and died for us while we were still sinners. He gave his life that we might have eternal life for all who would believe in him. And so today, if, you're, if you've been chasing after, and you just feel like, man, I'm just not satisfied with where life is today, then maybe today you need to ask Jesus Christ to come and be your Lord and Master. Because Jesus Christ can bring you satisfaction, and you don't have to own a thing. You can be as broke as, as possible in our country. You, you can have nothing else, but if you have Christ, you can be satisfied. So today, that's our invitation. Let's follow after Christ. Be satisfied in him. And if you're a believer today, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, don't find satisfaction in your hobby. That cannot be where true satisfaction lies. That if I don't get to do this, then I'm not happy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, Lord, I thank you. I thank you that you are a God of grace and mercy, that, that, that I didn't have to earn your love, but that you've offered it to me freely. God, I thank you that you've made me exactly how you've made me. Uh, Lord, to be passionate about things that other people think are weird, but Lord, that you've made them to be passionate about things that I think are weird. God, you are good. And Lord, I thank you for the gift of being able to find full satisfaction in life in you and then being able to enjoy life as you've given it to us. God, you are good. And Lord, may we use how you've made us to worship you and to tell others about your great love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.